Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Are you a leader? How much do you trust your subordinates? Enough to let them strap you to a litter and then let them lower you on a rope over the side of a 30-story skyscraper? Daniel Andrus, the fire chief for the city of Concord, New Hampshire, let his subordinates do exactly that. In today's podcast, Dan tells the story of his 37-year career as a firefighter. Dan has a long list of credentials, including master's degrees in public administration and economics. He is, as he puts it, a continual learner. In addition to his role as fire chief, he serves on the boards of a number of nonprofit organizations. This was one of the most educational podcasts for me that I've done so far because I knew very little about the organization and operations of the fire service. The fire service is a critical community resource that every healthcare executive should have an understanding of. So I was very pleased Dan took the time to share his story, and I hope it's useful to healthcare executives as they think about emergency preparedness. You are listening to the unabridged version of the interview. An abridged version is also available. Please see our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information. Welcome to The Forge, Dan. Thank you, Mark. It's good to be here. I think if you polled men and asked them what jobs they fantasized that they might do when they were kids, being a firefighter would be close to the top. Uh, Not only have you spent your career as a firefighter, but your father was a firefighter uh, when you were growing up in Utah. What was it like growing up with a father who was a firefighter, and how did it influence your your following in his footsteps? Uh, It wasn't, to my young mind, any different than any other person's parents' vocation. Uh, My dad worked 24-hour shifts until I was seven. I assumed everybody's father did that, and he was away at night, okay. which was a great way to uh, get away with some stuff that I might not otherwise have gotten away with. But what struck me about his career was throughout it, the passion that he brought to it. And unlike most firefighters, he spent most of his career in fire prevention. He felt like that was the way he could save lives. So he spent 19 of his 30 years in the prevention world, which really influenced um, a lot of my practice and a lot of my education coming into the fire service. So in in 1979, you actually started working as a firefighter and emergency medical technician in Salt Lake City. And I believe you had not graduated from high school at that point. I actually graduated from high school 13 months previously. Oh, you did? Okay. uh, At that point, I was the youngest firefighter hired in 32 years. They hired an 18-year-old in 1947, and he didn't last. So I was the first, the youngest person in the department to that date. Okay. How did you decide at that point that you wanted to to go into the field? I really caught the, um, caught the fever when I was 14 years old. I had thought about a career in medicine. I was very interested in journalism and writing. And at 14, I said, well, I have to make life decisions now. And I looked around, I thought, doing what my dad does would be an incredible way to spend my life. Um, it would really be a vocation and not just a career. And I knew how passionate he was and how he just um, drove himself hard because he really believed the work he was doing was saving lives. And from then on, the people who were on the department time will tell you that uh, any fire, any EMS incident within about a two-mile radius of our house, I would show up. And I would run. 
Yeah. Um, I would do well to do that now. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, pretty well yeah, I had the passion. Yeah. And uh, if you look at my high school yearbooks, they're the, my passion for it was evident. People commented on how much I, I loved the fire service. Okay. So you, were, um, you graduated from high school. Did you, were you already in college at that point? Yes, I had done a year full-time at the University of Utah. Okay. And pretty well had my freshman year in and was appointed to the Salt Lake City Fire Department in the summer of 1979 to go through recruit school. Okay, so what did you have to do in order to, okay, so you were already, you were in college. How did you have the time, how did you fit that, that choice to join the fire department in with going into college or actually, being in college? I actually took about a year and a half off. Okay. Um, when I got there, I devoted my time to going through recruit school, to uh, mastering the studies of my probationary year and at the time the department had a four-year training program to qualify you to be um, a journey-level firefighter. So I was out of college about a year and a half and then picked it up when I was about 21. Okay. And really enjoyed it and actually finished not too much later than I would have. I was 24 when I got my bachelor's degree. Okay. So you were, and you were working uh, as a firefighter mm -hmm. while you were in school as well? Yes. We were doing 24-hour shifts, which gave me the ability to have blocks of time off. And I was also so enthusiastic, I was known as someone who would work for anybody at any time. And uh, that allowed me, when I needed time off myself, I had a pool to draw from who, for people who would come in and cover for three hours while I took off to go to class at the university. Wow. wow, that's neat. So do you remember your first runs? What was it like being so young on the force and having so much responsibility? We always work as a team, so I never had the sense that I was being given too much responsibility. I was 19 and pretty well up to the task. I'll point out too that when my dad was 17, he was on a Navy ship bound for Asia. And he actually wound up in China for a couple of years, which was a form of experience. So in terms of my family, I was a late starter at 19. Um, so okay. he was out there. But we always worked in a team. And I had come in as an emergency medical technician. I'd had eight weeks of pretty intensive training in the fire academy, uh, Salt Lake's Recruit Academy. So I felt um, sufficiently skilled to be out there and to be working as part of the team that I could contribute, but still be supported by the other people on our, on our crews. So the way that you actually entered your career was as an EMT then? Uh, actually, it was a, I was a firefighter EMT, and okay. uh, the way I entered was they gave a written exam. There were 400 applicants that took the exam, about 40 passed, and they hired 18, and I was about two-thirds of the way down that route. Okay. They hired a class of six, then my class of 12. Okay. So you, so, so coming in, you, you were mentioning the eight weeks, eight weeks of training. Was, mm -hmm. that, was that firefighter, was that your first training with the department, and was that firefighter slash EMT? Uh, that was, I already had my EMT. I had done that uh, before I came on, in okay. the time between the time I tested the time that I was okay. appointed. And that was pretty, it was seven weeks of... Um, intensive firefighter training, and it was one week of refresher on emergency medical services and how Salt Lake City worked. So you were trained to do both jobs. It wasn't. Yes. It mm -hmm. wasn't that you were just an EMT. Maybe I misheard you earlier. It wasn't. Mm -hmm. It was. It wasn't that you were just an EMT on the crew. It was you were a full firefighter slash EMT, mm -hmm. and and that was the role. That is that the skill set that everyone on the team has at that level. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. At, at a minimum. Yes, at a minimum, and that's true for Concord as well as Salt Lake. Okay. So okay. pretty well any department now you'll have to have both credentials because we're all dual role EMS and firefighting personnel. Okay. So you, you pursued a Bachelor of Science in Management from the University of Utah. 
Why, why the, the management degree? That was the recommendation of my father. He said okay. it was he would look to something either in the uh, management, business management, or legal field if you want to make a career in the fire service. And I found my undergraduate education in management to be, first of all, underappreciated. I was trying to balance shifts, and I was 19, 20, 21 years old, but it was a fabulous um, and rich undergraduate education. I didn't get as much as I probably could have, and I regret that, and I've gone back, and I had a pretty solid GPA. It was well in about the 3.4 range. That's but quite I good for an undergraduate. I, I, I do <laughs> recall that it was a good education, and the classes on strategy, business strategy, and other things have proved very useful to me in my current role okay. and all of my leadership roles. Okay. And you, you also earned, at some point, and I'm, and I'm not sure about the timing of this, a Bachelor of Science in Fire Service Administration from Western Oregon State College. When did you start that program? I actually started that after I got my master's degree. I started that in the summer of 1988 and finished about three years later. And the advantage I had was already having a bachelor's degree. I was able to just do the major coursework. Okay. And that was done as a distance learning format. Mm -hmm. But I was paired with instructors who really became mentors to me. They were people primarily in fire prevention technology. It was taught through um, local colleges and universities, but through the National Fire Academy curriculum. And they did an excellent job of selecting people who were leaders in their field and leaders in instructional methodology. Great. I made some good friends, and those, yeah. those have endured. Yeah, now these were, so these were people, even though it was a distance learning arrangement, you actually got to meet with these people, they were actually practitioners? We did most of the stuff on the phone, but yes, okay. they were fire chiefs and fire marshals and people wow. who had significant career achievements, but who also had solid graphs of materials, so yeah. there was a lot of give and take. At that time, it was phone and mail. We okay. didn't have any kind of email. Wow. But it was a great experience to do yeah. a second bachelor's right in the field. Okay, great. And how did that change your practice? I know this is kind of, we're kind of jumping forward mm -hmm. 10 years or so, but how did that, how did getting that education change your practice or, or improve your appreciation of what you were doing? I had the great fortune of having two people, um, Howard Rayer in Oregon, and there was a fire chief in Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, Howard was very interested in fire prevention and really got me moving along the lines of public education and community risk management. And the chief in Vancouver was someone who at that time was implementing in-vehicle technology. What is in-vehicle um, It's mobile data computers. It's okay. pretty much the standard for the fire service now. And, but in 1990, that was a very cutting edge um, initiative. And I learned a lot from him and it's something that figured pretty promptly just a few years later when I became a battalion chief and took over the communications and technology division. Okay. So it was a great experience. I had the great advantage of taking a generalist management degree from the University of Utah and then a specific undergraduate degree in fire services administration from Western Oregon State. And they were great experiences. And you mentioned that, that you've stayed in touch with some of these gentlemen that you worked with. I have uh, lost touch over the last few years. They're aging out. I'm not but sure you if they're did, still alive. But, but you did, did for a while. I did. I, I wanted to let them know that I was progressing so they knew that I had yeah. uh, I'd gotten this job as in Concord. They knew when I became fire marshal, and I gave them a lot of credit for the uh, interest in the field and the education they provided me with getting some of those jobs. That's great. Um, so in 1985, you became a firefighter paramedic. 
earlier you'd said you were a firefighter EMT. Mm -hmm. What's the difference between an EMT and a paramedic for those folks sure. who don't know that? Uh, the training for EMT, an emergency medical technician, is around 150 hours. Um, for paramedic, uh, when I went through, it was about 1,200 hours. Okay. And the difference in that is um, the lines were sharper in 1985, but emergency medical technicians did CPR, splitting, bandaging, and all the other skills that are non-invasive. Uh, by invasive, I mean IVs, intravenous lines, and defibrillation and other things. Paramedics had a range of about three dozen medications they could administer. They could do endotracheal intubations. Um, they could that do some. That's that. actually putting a breathing tube into somebody's trachea using a laryngoscope. Okay. It's a skill most practiced by anesthesiologists, which is who I trained with to, to master that. But it's really those things that are um, somewhat high risk procedures and you have to know what you're doing because you'll cause more harm to your patient if you do it wrong than good for them if you do it right. You can kill them yeah. if you don't. If you give them the wrong drug dose, you can kill them. Right. So it was much more of the advanced procedures. So a lot of times when medications on cardiology, medical emergencies like managing uh, diabetic emergencies, seizures, um, the whole range of cardiovascular, abdominal illnesses and um, strokes, anything that people are gonna call 911 for. And that again was a great education. It was very, very, very intense. How did you get that? How, was it part of the? It was, was it part of the fire department? Uh, was it a fire department course, or did you? I mean, did you learn it as part of your job? How, how did you get that education? Uh, the Salt Lake City Fire Department actually sent me to Weber State College for five months. They okay. said, "We'll see you in June. Enjoy the winter <laughs> up nice. there. Go learn to be a paramedic." So I was completely relieved of any kind of work responsibilities. Uh, I grew a beard, which was very nice. Uh -huh. um, I can do that now, but it's white. <laughs> and um, I just attended classes. We were in class from 8 to 5, Monday through Friday. And we typically take a dinner break, and then we were studying until 9 or 10 at night every night. And we actually lived on campus in the dormitories, which okay. was a, a, an experience I had never had before that one. Okay. So we were up there. We did a quarter, an academic quarter, 10 weeks in solid um, classwork. And then we spent a 10-week quarter alternating between clinical time and classroom time. Okay. So clinical time meaning you were in a hospital? Uh, we were in hospitals. We worked in intensive care units. We worked in labor and delivery. Um, worked on different rescue services around in Utah. We were exposed to several different agencies. We did time with anesthesiologists and surgery, which was very interesting because okay. you would spend a few minutes getting the patients sedated and under, and then they would talk to you about medicine. And, uh, and sometimes real estate, which was a, a big <laughs> thing too. But uh, I learned a lot from anesthesiologists who would spend that time uh, when the patient was under and they were monitoring and they, they do their jobs. When they're doing their jobs best, you don't even notice because they're keeping everything for that patient stable while the surgeon operates. Yeah. And it was a great experience to have hours on end with, uh, with very, very good physicians who would share their knowledge. Great. Great experience. Yeah. So this was so this was something that the, the department paid you to do in addition yes, to Yes, yes, I was kept nice. full salary nice. and sent to school and it was a great and incredible um, opportunity. And from my point I stayed a paramedic for the rest of my career okay. and even though I wasn't a firefighter paramedic for long, I continued as an officer and certainly uh, felt a great debt to them for what they'd done and I would jump in whenever they needed somebody. Yeah. So you you mentioned you became an officer. So in nineteen eighty seven you were promoted to fire lieutenant. 
what does a fire lieutenant do um, that's different from a firefighter? What does it mean to be a fire lieutenant? That's a supervisory position. Okay. So typically, engine ladder companies are three or four people, and they are headed by an officer. So there's an officer, a driver, and either a firefighter, EMT, or fighter, fighter, or paramedic who is on the crew. And at that point, I was the supervisor. Okay. And it was a step into my first leadership role. Okay. So how many men did you supervise in, the, in that role then? Um, I so had, was, uh, was I usually crew? had three. Three, um, okay. Typically it was three people, and I was the, uh, the boss of that small crew, but we were, those were the, the work units okay. of, the, of the fire service. And I had the chance to move around quite a bit, so I got a lot of experience geographically and functionally. Okay. What did you learn? What, what I, I should back up a little bit. What, what surprised you about when you came on as a firefighter? So you had seen your dad, you know, grow up, watching what he was doing, you were passionate about it, you wanted to do it. What surprised you about actually doing it? Once you actually got in the field, what were, what were the things that you didn't, you were like, oh, wow, I didn't think it would be like this? How much there is to learn in the yeah. fire service, okay. which has continued to be true right up until today. Sure. How much there is to learn. Um, I went through the department's um, manual. I went through several other manuals over four years. I went through apparatus operation, driving and operating pumpers and um, aerial ladders and all of the manual skills based things that we do. And also a lot of work in fire prevention, fire dynamics and understanding fire behavior and how our work tactically impacted fire behavior and quite a bit of academic background there. And then it was paramedic school, which was very intense, mastering a lot of, a lot of information in a very stress-filled environment. And then as an officer, learning some things about leadership and getting along with people and trying to form a cohesive team. And invariably, you know, 98% of the people are very good, and then you spend your time with 2% that are causing problems. So that also was a great early introduction to managing people and, and making sure that they were, they were forming and that the unit was performing well. So that's an, I mean, that is a, that is a first line supervisor. So what did you take away from that experience that stayed with you? What I took away was an early passion for working with other people. And I loved working with probationary firefighters. I loved doing the training. Okay. That was good for me. Um, for me to teach is the best means of learning. Okay. And when I was with probationary firefighters and even more experienced veteran firefighters, most of whom had much longer in the fire service than I had. And um, just, we had, we spent a lot of time out in our district learning about the hazards and the buildings and the water supply systems and the different things that we would encounter um, on emergencies. And we spent a lot of time just doing training, just practicing, uh, connecting to sandpipes, laying hose lines, connecting to fire hydrants, putting up ladders. And uh, I really found an early and an ongoing passion for training. Okay. So in 1991, you moved to a what sounds like a quite a different position. You were the public information officer and administrative assistant to the fire chief uh, for Salt Lake City. So up until this point, you'd been on the line, yes, mm -hmm. um, responding to calls and fighting fires. This job sounds like it involved a different kind of firefighting, if you will. Uh, what did you move, uh, why did you move into this position and, and how did you adjust to the new role? At 12 years, I really felt the need. I was coming to a point where I'd been a lieutenant for four years and I felt like before I moved on, I needed some administrative experience. And the fire chief had actually encouraged me to apply for this position, which was primarily media relations. This was the 
um, point of contact for all of the uh, TV stations, radio stations, newspapers, and it was quite an education. And I, it was very interesting because I had I was dealing with up to seven news outlets. Um, during my tenure there, we had the governor's mansion catch fire. Oh my! <laughs> um, that was it became a fourth alarm incident and actually made national news, which was interesting to talk to some of the figures on the national scene. We had a hazardous material incident involving sulfur dioxide that caused the evacuation of uh, 1,500 people and sent 503 people to the hospital, wow. which also made national news. Yeah. Uh, my wife's sister in uh, Massachusetts called her that night to say, I was just up um, doing some late housework and I'm listening to your husband on the radio. So. <laughs> um, Certainly there were, and just the routine fires, and just acquired from that just a real sense of the pleasure and the power of working with media people and building relationships. And if I had a legacy from that, it was um, they knew they could call me anytime. That wasn't abused, and many of those relationships endure today through social media for me. Yeah, we had, uh, that's neat. We talked about old times that they knew they could get me. I was eager to get the story out. and. We worked hard to make sure the message got out in, in a time when we didn't have any kind of things like social media or any real kind of computer use. We were just beginning with email. What, would, what advice would you give to people working in, in healthcare or in firefighting with dealing with the media based on your experience? Embrace it. Okay. Embrace it. There is um, sort of an innate fear of reporters among most people. I would say embrace it. I just had the chance to have a conversation um, on Thursday of last week with a reporter from a station in town who is new to her assignment and she wants to come in and we were talking about some storylines and ideas, but there are so many opportunities for your organization and as the public information officer during that time, I worked with a number of corporate media staffs and we'd have major emergencies and many of them retreated and to pull in to not comment when you've had a major emergency loses an opportunity for you to, to get the story out. Is there an expectation that firefighters in the service uh, who want to move up in responsibility, move up to be a battalion commander or eventually a fire mm -hmm. chief, that, that you're going to move from being, on, uh, being in the field to an administrative role like that and maybe move back and forth? Is that a career? Yes. Is that a mm -hmm. typical career expectation? It is, absolutely. I'd say uh, for that department, uh, for Salt Lake City, any new battalion chief knows that they are not going to stay on the line. They are going to come in and they're going to be a division chief for emergency medical services or in fire prevention or at the airport or in the training division and they'll have a staff assignment. And why is that years. important? It's important because you really need to be exposed to the different facets of the organization. Uh, a lot of people uh, think just about the response component of our organization and don't realize that we have a prevention staff that's doing fire investigations, fire inspections, um, prosecuting arsons, and doing other things that are assisting to prosecute arsons. Um, working with, in teams with uh, county attorneys and district attorneys that we have an entire component around communications, which was one thing that I was involved with, that we have dispatch, emergency dispatch services. And there's so much more to the fire and emergency services than the red trucks. Yeah, There's a lot to it. And if you're going to be an administrator, you really need exposure in those areas. Yeah, I, I remember uh, as a young lieutenant working in, in the, the 
cavalry. The, I had a, I had a, um, a tank uh, a platoon leader who moved up to be a support platoon leader say to me something mm -hmm. to be effective. You know, I, 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 when I was on the, on the line, I just always kind of, the, the medics just showed up, the food just showed up, the ammunition just showed up, and I just didn't realize all, yes, the, all yeah. the work that goes behind it. So it sounds kind of like what you're talking exactly. about. Exactly. It's, it's very much like a standing army. We, are, we truly are in Concord, kind of the, the standing army for the city of Concord for whatever comes our way, whether it be a major fire or whether you're having a heart attack or whether we have a flood. It's the standing army this city has in place to defend it. So how did this role prepare you for your next role as fire captain? You were promoted to fire captain in 1994. What is a fire captain and how is it different from being a fire lieutenant? Fire captain is the, the next step up the ladder and lieutenants move around quite a bit uh, in, in that department at that time. And the fire captains have their own station. And so you have the ability to manage crew and a station and to be a little more plugged into long-term operations. So you can really have the, the ability as a captain to say, okay, this is the plan for this crew, this station, and to do some long-term planning that lieutenants don't have the tenure or other um, abilities to do. And I'll note too that the position of lieutenant was eliminated uh, in Salt Lake City, and I, I will say um, 23 years later, I think that was a mistake for that department. Concord has lieutenants. Concord uses the position very, very well and effectively to, okay. to develop people. So um, as a captain, I was back out on the line. I was in a paramedic engine company in a very ethnically and culturally diverse area of Salt Lake City. And it was, again, a great eye-opener. I was not foreign to that because I'd been on the line for 12 years. But I was actually in the most diverse region in the city. And okay. probably um, half or more of our patients were not proficient in English, and we became uh, semi-proficient in at least medical Spanish. And it was quite an education to be working so, that. So help me understand the difference between, you said as a captain you were in charge of a, a house. Is that right? Is that yes. the mm -hmm. phrase you used? Okay. What does that mean? So, so you were a lieutenant, you, had, you were in charge of a, a crew that was running mm -hmm. a truck or trucks. Yes. With, as a captain, now, what's the difference between the scope of responsibility? Uh, there are several more facility issues that okay. are now part of your portfolio. So you have responsibilities in Salt Lake. We did quarterly station inspections, which were both for cleanliness and for capital items and for apparatus items. And you're expected to take a much more active role in like assuring that any vehicle issues were addressed, that any station issues were being appropriately addressed that there was a plan in place for capital improvements for the station to make sure that the facilities were kept up and that you really have the longevity and the tenure there to make sure that that particular station was going to continue to function as optimally as it could. And feel free to talk about this as, as how it runs here in Concord mm -hmm. as well. But um, so is there a captain for every firehouse? Yes. And uh, with Concord, it's um, a little, it's, they actually take this model farther. The captains have a budget. It's not a huge budget, but they do have a budget which includes office supplies. They have a budget for building repairs. They have operational responsibilities. So different captains have responsibilities for different components of larger programs. Like uh, there's one station that has hose testing. Another has fire extinguishers. So okay. there are different components to the captain's job. But 
Concord has uh, taken this concept of station captain beyond what I had experienced, and they are truly the managers of that station. They are they sort of, in a sense, own the station in the sense that they have a budget. Certainly, they still work within the system. Um, they feel like I think all four of our station captains feel pretty busy with taking care of facility needs. Okay. In addition so, to being supervisors. So a lieutenant shows up for work for a 24-hour shift, they run their crew, mm -hmm. and then they leave, and they're not responsible in between shifts for what happens out of the fire station. Is that uh, correct? And it's the captain who's kind of responsible for making sure that a new lieutenant shows yes. up to run mm -hmm. the trucks for the next day and, and, and so forth? Um, actually, the assignments, the, the staffing assignments were made by the battalion chief, so in Concord, uh, the, we have four shifts, and three of those shifts are led by lieutenants, who are the supervisors. One shift is led by a captain who does all the duties that are incumbent upon a lieutenant for the shift okay. in terms of making emergency responses, but also the captain has the more, uh, the large scope of facility needs and planning and budget and um, really making sure that the, the station is running as optimally as it can. Okay. So you were promoted again in 1996 to battalion chief, which is a position you just mentioned mm -hmm. a moment ago. But this one, you were the battalion chief for the Emergency Management and Technical Services Division uh, in Salt Lake. What is this position, and how did it fit into the fire department for the city? That was a great career move for me. And as I mentioned earlier, you know when you were promoted battalion chief from the line that you were not going to stay on the line. So I went to uh, the, the newly created Division of Emergency Management and Communications and Technology. And my primary role that year um, was for doing the emergency planning for the Interstate 15 corridor widening, which impacted a lot of our responses. And also to um, split what had been a dedicated public safety communication center into fire and police components, that we would have a dedicated fire dispatching center. And we achieved that in the summer of 1997. We brought 17 people over into our dedicated fire dispatch center and five months later, we were accredited as the 15th center of excellence in the world for emergency medical dispatching, wow. which involved a phenomenal amount of um, both paperwork, training, documentation to demonstrate to the academy that our 16 personnel, our 16 dispatchers and their supervisor were absolutely proficient in medical dispatch protocols. How many other battalions were there in the city and, and did they all have technical specialties like what you just described or they at the time there were 10 battalion chiefs and six were assigned on the line there were two okay. per shift um, salt lake has works a 56 hour work week and there were three shifts each with two battalions so there was an east side battalion and a west side battalion and each battalion chief had seven stations Okay. Yeah. So, so, so there are some that were battalion chiefs were running line operations. Some have specialties like what you were. Yes. At the time, we had some. We had people over communications. We had people in fire prevention, emergency medical services, and training. So that was the split, and it's changed somewhat now. They've had a couple of new divisions come in. So currently, Salt Lake City runs with a similar but not exactly the same structure. They've adapted it to changing circumstances. Okay. But, Typically, um, almost half are in staff positions and half are out on the line. Okay. Is that true here in Concord as well? Is that a structure that you have here? Uh, here in Concord, we have four battalion chiefs and then we have two bureau chiefs. So we have the two bureau chiefs. One is over emergency medical services and training, and we call that the Professional Standards Bureau. And there's one who is the fire marshal over the Fire Prevention Bureau, which includes both 
Prevention, Investigation, and the Fire Alarm and Traffic Bureau. So that's our split here, a much smaller okay. organization sure. by scale, sure. but uh, very much the same kinds of functions and positions. So we have six chief officers at the battalion bureau chief level, uh, four on the line and two in staff. Okay. So while you were in this role as uh, working with emergency management, you must have worked closely with the direct care system, with the hospitals and the emergency rooms and so forth. Actually, that was more the emergency medical services battalion chief, but oh, okay. uh, at the time he did very, very closely. And uh, yeah, we were close friends. Unfortunately, during my tenure, he was killed in a helicopter accident, oh, which my. was a, uh, a devastating time for us. He, he kept himself fresh um, by working on the weekends as a helicopter paramedic, and uh, we lost him in 1998, which was oh. very sad. But he is someone who had really, um, I loved working with Tim. He had moved us forward. And he had been such an ally for me in dispatch and him in emergency medical services. Um, we had been paramedic partners. We had worked together for probably well over a decade at that point. And uh, our two divisions were yoked. But he was more the person who was out front with, we, with the hospitals. And there were five major hospitals in Salt Lake. So we had the Inter-Hospital Committee, which he was uh, a very valuable part of. And he also did kind of the frontline work of dealing with emergency departments and issues that would come up related to care. But very, very frontline as the current incumbent um, division chief, Claire Baldwin, is as well. Um, Claire's, Claire has a very, very busy week. And um, he and I are old friends. We talk a lot. And he is giving me some, some sense of perspective on what's happening there. But still, absolutely plugged into multiple numbers of hospitals and provider staff and the larger healthcare picture for the Salt Lake region. So you served in that role um, until 1998 uh, when you became the fire marshal for Salt Lake City. Uh, and you've kind of mentioned this function already, but uh, help us understand, what is a fire marshal? I've heard that phrase. What is, it, what is a fire marshal? Um, and I'm assuming it's kind of the same across various departments? Yes. Um, actually, it's um, very similar in... The, the job description here in Concord as it is in Salt Lake as it is in many, many cities. And that is the person who is in charge of fire prevention. Okay. And prevention, fires are prevented through plan review and through the construction and design process and as we design buildings and build them and, and inspect those. It's um, done by maintenance inspections. So we do place of public assembly inspections and post-occupancy types of things. We do uh, public education to teach people about fire and burn safety. And we do fire investigations to determine the cause of fires and, if necessary, work with law enforcement and the judicial system to prosecute arsonists. So it's about fire prevention. That's the, okay. the, the two-letter job description. This, is a, this sounds, I mean, just the things you just listed sound very technical. They are. Um, how, did you, how are you prepared to move into that role? A uh, couple things. One is that um, I had some coursework during my undergraduate days. I had attended the National Fire Academies in Emmitsburg, Maryland a few times and had some training in education. I had, through a previous fire marshal since 1991, been certified in the fire code, so I actually had uh, certification attesting to my competency in uh, my knowledge of the fire code. Is that a standard part of development of a firefighter as they move up? It really takes us the initiative from the person's part. Okay. But uh, early on, I thought this is a credential I want, and I went after it. Okay. 
And then I'd also been involved on the national level with the National Fire Protection Association since um, before I made captain, I had sat on one of the major code writing committees for fire alarm systems. So I had that background as well. Okay, so you have been pursuing this professionally, mm -hmm. um, educating yourself, preparing yourself for this position, really. Fire marshal was the position that most of my education was directed toward. Okay. And uh, as a personal honor, uh, my father and I are, to date, the only father-son team who have both served as fire marshals in Salt Lake City. That's fabulous. Yes, what a great yeah, story. That's nice. uh, yeah. he, he lived long enough to see me um, get into that position and spend some time there, and I think that he was uh, proud that we had achieved that distinction. That's neat. During your tenure as the fire marshal, there were some pretty big events happening in Salt Lake. <laughs> we were awarded the bid for the Winter Olympic Games of 2002. We awarded that bid in June of 1995, and we literally started planning that day okay. and building infrastructure. By the time I came in in 1998, between 1998 and 2001, it ramped up from about a quarter of our work to about three quarters time, and literally for the last six months before the Winter Olympic Games almost became full-time. I don't know that we did lo a lot of anything else in Salt Lake City <laughs> other imagine. than work on planning for the Olympic Games. I think somebody did the work. I'm not sure who it was. It was not me. Yeah. But especially with the terrorist attacks that occurred five months before the opening of the Games, we were on high alert that um, the world was now a, a terrorist stage. And to his great credit, Mitt Romney, who was the CEO of the Olympic Committee, really had the determination early on, we were not going to cancel. We were going to heal the nation. Uh, a noble yeah. and compelling mission that he said, you know, we've been through some trauma and we're going to do all our, our can everything we can to bring the Olympics to Salt Lake, to have a safe Olympics, to have the world rejoice in the Olympic spirit. The Olympic spirit will heal the nation or start that healing process. Yeah. And that was a pretty powerful and compelling vision for and, us. And you were a part of that, making yes. sure that it was going to be oh, safe. Yeah, we were, uh, we did some interesting things to make sure that tents, temporary structures, fireworks, propane, uh, places of assembly, they have what they call international houses. Uh, a lot of those were going up in warehouses that weren't built for that. And we did a lot of work to make sure that, that all was safe. And between February 8th and February 24th of 2002, it paid off handsomely. We did not have a single major injury or any other kind of untoward event during our time hosting the Olympics. That's great. In two, so you finished your tour as the fire marshal in 2003, mm -hmm. and you moved over to be the battalion chief for the operations bureau um, for the Salt Lake City Fire Department. What is that position? I was one of the six battalion chiefs assigned to field services, field emergency services, and I was assigned to um, the East Battalion on A shift. Um, interestingly, the place where my father started in 1950. That wow. Was Nice um, closing of the loop, and I had seven stations that I oversaw, and one of those was an emerging and developing station devoted to technical rescue, high angle rescue, uh, ropes, um, confined space rescue, and I did some things in there um, with those crews, um, not due to my technical proficiency, but due to willingness, and at one point I was lowered over the side of a high-rise building in a soaks basket or a litter, and uh, I'm not particularly fond of heights, <laughs> but I have ultimate trust in the crews working for me that they could work 30 stories in the air. You were lowered in a litter, strapped into a litter? Yeah. 30 stories 
in the air. Uh, somewhere around there. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was really quite an emotional experience. But I think they would have had to break out the defibrillators uh, for me. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't get to do the high line between two high-rise buildings. Oh my gosh. That, wow. that, I didn't get to do that, but wow. I did allow them to lower me over the side. Good for you. And it's my, my absolute trust in my crews that their techno-competence, I would put my life in their hands any day of yeah. the week. Yeah. They were good. They were that good. I knew they would never hurt me. Yeah. And uh, I also was absolutely sure that any kind of operation they undertook, they could do safely. Uh, they did some really magnificent work on some um, trench rescues and confined space and saved some lives while I was their, their chief. And I took pride in the work they did to save other people's lives. So this is a job where you step back out from the administrative and um, kind of staff roles in the department and back into line operations, but now yes. at a higher level. Yes, this is the position at the back of the SUV on the radio, coordinating resources and making sure as the incident commander that whatever the operating forces need to control the incident, whether it be a fire or a mass casual incident or a trench rescue or a hangle rescue, that they got those resources. So, so you served as a battalion chief for, for almost four years, and then you were promoted to the deputy fire chief position. Uh, I'm assuming this is a second-in-command position? There, there were three of us who three were of able. You, okay. So there were three uh, deputy fire chiefs. And, okay, so uh, we what was your scope as one of the deputy fire chiefs? Uh, mine was the administrative bureau, which okay. included human resources, finance, um, emergency management, and planning. And uh, I interestingly had the airport operations unit. So I had all of airport emergency operations, and I had emergency medical services. Okay. How is, uh, so we hadn't talked about airport, but how is airport operations different from city operations? Uh, It's very different. Um, The apparatus are completely different. As it was explained to me, in the city, structure fires start small and get big. At the airport, they start big and they stay big. Because (laughs) if we we dump um, a major aircraft and it catches fire, you have a phenomenal amount of fuel, people, and structure to contend with all at once. So there are very stringent standards set by the FAA about response to um, major aircraft emergencies, and we certainly met all those about uh, both time elements and about how much extinguishing agent you bring. And fortunately, during that time and as far back as uh, from 1965, we have not had a multiple fatality accident, to my knowledge, at the Salt Lake City International Airport. We had a couple of small aircraft that went down and killed pilots, but uh, to my knowledge, there had not been any passenger deaths at at the airport itself. Do, do firefighters kind of specialize in airport operations? Did you serve and when you were a firefighter or, or a lieutenant? Did you serve in the airport role? Yes. And shortly before my promotion lieutenant, they offered a credentialing course, and I took and passed that course and served time as an airport rescue firefighting officer as part of my regular rotation of duties. But yes, it is a specialty. It requires both um, testing and a pretty substantial amount of training in aircraft recognition, aircraft firefighting techniques, rescue, in very different environments than structural firefighting. Completely different environments. So what I'm hearing from you kind of a, uh, as, a, as a pause here is you really pursued credentialing in almost everything you could get your hands on. I had uh, paramedic hazardous materials and um, airport rescue operations for my Okay. And, and some stuff in fire prevention too. Yes, I'm a, I'm a continual learner. Yeah, yeah okay. So you picked up some additional responsibilities that 
included some things like human resources and budget and finance. Had you dealt with this kind of responsibility before? Yes, actually, um, I've had a long-standing interest in uh, budget and finance. It was one of my academic focuses, both as an undergraduate and graduate student. And um, my former fire chief, the one who appointed me to that position, told me one time, you are a budget nut. <laughs> and it was intended as a compliment. Uh -huh. So uh, uh -huh. I really embrace the budgeting end of things and uh, still do in this position. Sure. And understanding finances is key to understanding organizations. I happen to agree with that as a former comptroller. So. Yes, I, I knew I would find sympathetic ears with you. Yeah, I um, understand the month, the dollars. Okay, so there were two other deputies. What, yes. what did they do? There was a deputy chief of operations, and the primary responsibility of that role is supervising people in the field. So the six battalion chiefs who mm -hmm. did the online supervision report to that deputy chief of operations. And then there was a deputy chief of support services who oversaw communications and fire prevention and technology. And the primary job of that role was in advancing technology in the department. That was really the, the tech person that made sure that we were staying current with whatever was out there in the field. Okay. Now you, in this role you said you had responsibility for emergency medical services. Did you at that point have a significant relationship with the direct care operations in the city? I did. There was a battalion chief in charge of emergency medical services. He's mm -hmm. the current fire chief in Salt Lake City. Oh, okay. I'm very proud of Brian. And um, he dealt with most of the first line stuff, but as deputy I also became involved in some of his role and actually coordinated. We had a, a medical director, a physician, who was actually on staff who had an office um, down the hall filled with Elvis memorabilia. So it was one of his <laughs> okay. <laughs> great okay. passions, but, uh, but I actually had the ability to work. Uh, we had a physician on staff directing our emergency medical services and um, supervising our practice of pre-hospital medicine. Okay. And worked very closely with him, with the hospitals, um, and with the various components of healthcare. And at that time started an initiative for healthcare for the homeless with a clinic that worked downtown. We were going to the homeless shelter about 11 times a day. Getting called there. Yes. Okay. And we were for medical emergencies. Many of them weren't medical emergencies. And um, at the time, I was the president of the Community Health Centers Incorporated of their Board of Governors. And the homeless clinic had spun off from them about a decade before. And we established a relationship to establish a clinic within the homeless shelter and to have either physician or nurse practitioner providers doing the kind of routine care for foot injuries, diabetes management, and the idea was really to have an on-site clinic within the shelter where so many of the people had medical issues that presented as 911 calls. Okay, so was this in your role as the deputy or was it in your role as you said you were involved in the board of, of the community health centers? It was a nice collaboration of both roles for okay. me. So, uh, yes, I had both. been <laughs> a couple years prior I'd gotten involved in a passion of mine which was community health centers and okay. thanks to some physician friend, friends I got on the board and within about 14 months found myself as president of the board which was uh, an unusual uh, but in large ways welcome uh, move up for me and loved working with an agency as a, in the nonprofit world that was doing so much for thousands of people who would not otherwise have medical care and providing really good medical care. And as I saw what was happening there, it occurred to me that you know this was the model. It was the model shouldn't be paramedics and EMTs running there time and time again 
taking them to the emergency department where they spend a couple hours, get put back on the street without follow-up. Many of these people had psychosocial issues that really did not allow them to care for themselves as best they could. Okay. And we were looking for a model of having a medical home that would be a more appropriate and actually considerably less expensive means of care for these folks right. who really, really needed the care. So um, we did have a pilot project. My understanding is that that has expanded into a much more uh, widely embraced uh, mobile integrated healthcare system. Okay. And that's about seven years later. And I'm proud of having been around for planting the seeds of that initiative. Okay. And I think we're going to come to talk about you're looking at trying to do something like this in Concord or yes. something related to it. Mm-hmm. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. What part, so as the deputy, what part of the job represented the steepest learning curve for you? Because this is a big jump it is, in terms mm-hmm. of responsibility, I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. Um, for us, um, for the particular circumstance, we'd had our fire chief leave and we were working with a really good interim chief who I had known since I was about eight years old. But we, did, we were in an organizational transition and for the three deputies and the fire chief, we were trying to keep things running and keep the organization in at least a solid maintenance mode until the new leader arrived for us. That was challenging, but also uh, the variety of things because I went from dealing with the airport administration for one role to our contractor for ambulance services. And parenthetically, I'll say here, I'm so glad I'm in a department where we provide our own ambulance service and we're not at, we're not dealing with contracted services. That was a huge part of my role. And just the different demands on it. And it went from the human resource role where we had employee issues coming up to there was a lot of firefighting, non, not real fires, but real kind of administrative firefighting in that job. And it was challenging, demanding, and for the most part, I loved it. So during your tenure with the department back in Salt Lake, you earned, you also earned two master's degrees from the University of Utah, a master's of public administration and a master's of science in economics, which I, and I think it was health economics. Uh, that was a component of it. It was really uh, a pretty broad um, kind of public policy economics degree. Yeah, okay. phenomenal opportunity. Well, so what was the, I mean, so you're, you, were, you were picking up certifications and all these different fire things, and then on top of that, you're working on a couple of master's degrees. What was your motivation for pursuing the master's degrees? Um, I found school so compellingly interesting, and I mentioned that my engagement with my undergraduate studies was not as rich as it could be. The opposite was true. By the time I got to the Master Public Administration program, I was absolutely on, on fire, if you'll forgive the, <laughs> the uh, nice. comparison, and just love the courses in human resources, in budgeting, in administrative theory and practice, and made so many good friends in the faculty, and just loved my master's degree program okay. and finished that in 1988 and made close friends among the faculty and many of those relationships endure and unfortunately about half of those folks have passed on from this life so but uh, literally many still endure and I still consider them um, now in their 70s and 80s my mentors That's great. and uh, then at age 40 I gave myself a present went back and got the economics degree yeah. because I loved the rigor that economics brings to the policy sciences yeah. and the sense of cause effect the econometrics, the, the procedural rigor which the study of economics gives to public policy. Uh, again, I share, that, I share that sympathy with you. I, I, I knew I was with a kindred spirit. <laughs> um, did, did everyone in the department have advanced degrees? Oh, no. No, people okay. have a wide range of education. 
degrees and advanced degrees are much more prevalent now than when I started. Uh, they were pretty unusual back in the fire service of 35 and 40 years ago. Currently, just you know, here on my staff, uh, the deputy fire chief here has a master's degree in fire protection engineering, an undergraduate degree in civil engineering. Wow. And he's a registered professional engineer, which wow. is a, a potential he wouldn't have seen in a lot of deputy chiefs back in the day. Um, yeah. And to some degree, is still an, an unusual amount of education to have accumulated for, for, for that. But uh, the fire service has certainly embraced over the last decades the value of education. And a number of institutions have come forward to say, we can offer coursework that fits your schedule, especially with online scheduling and other distance learning formats. There are emerging and um, engaged formats where people in the fire and emergency services can do undergraduate and graduate degrees now. Do you encourage your staff to pursue this kind of, of education? Absolutely. Absolutely. Both, both, both formal mm -hmm. in, the, um, uh, in the university setting as well as the kind of credentialing specific to the fire service and so forth? Absolutely. I just, within about three weeks ago, had one of our firefighters who has just um, finished working so hard. He is uh, married with two children. He has worked so hard to get his undergraduate degree. And he says, I'm not going to take a break. I'm going to go right into a master's degree program. And this one is in uh, a Master of Education with an emphasis in instructional technology, which will be a phenomenal step forward for him. Yeah. And uh, I encourage it. Um, I have been talking with one of our retired firefighter paramedics, and she's pursuing a nursing degree. Um, we have people in the department who are registered nurses who have undergraduate degrees there, which is a great asset to an agency that provides medical care. And <clears throat> people will tell you, I'm... I'm enthusiastic yeah. about them going to school, and I love when they get in and the doors it opens for them and the insights they get, and it's great. And to some degree, they can appreciate my job and leadership's job more when they're doing the coursework. Oh, absolutely. Sure. So after nearly 30 years of service in Salt Lake uh, with, the, with the Salt Lake City Fire Department, rising to the penultimate position in the department, or one of three, you left the city in 2008 and came here to Concord to be the fire chief. How did you make that, how did you decide to make that leap? I mean, you were from Salt Lake, you had 30 years of professional relationships, experience in the department. Uh, I can only imagine the kind of social capital that you had to kind of leave behind in order to come to a new, a new place, a new organization. What was that like? How did you make that decision? What was it like? Um, from the time I was in fourth grade, my, my teacher, Mrs. Student, introduced me to New England in her huh. geography course, and uh, I became enchanted with the idea about this part of the country that had so much history and so much natural beauty, and I wanted to come here. And in 1988, I met a woman from Cambridge, Massachusetts, who was working in Salt Lake. And a year later, we were married, and we always had the life plan that we would return here when that became possible for both of us. And that, that happened in 2008. I had been here, 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 as in Concord almost every summer since 1988 and we uh -huh. were driving through and the last couple of years I had said no I would I would do anything to come to work here I love Concord it is the of all the places in New England I had seen it was the place that most enchanted me I okay. used that with that word intentionally okay so we had the chance to come here and now she is close to her brother and sister both sets of parents have passed on but we now we are close to that side of the family and pretty close to where she grew up all right, that's neat. So before we actually talk about your new role here as fire chief, I understand you consider Concord enchanting, but what is unique about the city 
So for people who are not from New England and may not be familiar with Concord, what's unique about the city of Concord and in particular from your perspective as the fire chief? Concord is one of the most unique places I've ever seen. Uh, it's a capital city. We, uh, we have the urban piece. We have high-rise buildings. We have buildings that date back to the 18th century. We have a substantial amount of commercial structures that date back to the 19th century. So we have our problem, both our um, social capital and some problems with that in terms of fire protection, but it adds a beauty and charm to this city that just isn't found in a lot of western places. Uh, a lot of the city is forested. We have, in addition to my role as fire chief, I'm also the forest fire warden for oh. this community. Okay. And all of the officers here uh, are deputy fire wards. We have, you can get lost here. My daughter has been lost here. I will never admit to being lost, but I'll admit to uh, taking some walks through the forest for longer than I thought they would be. <laughs> and it has such a natural beauty to it. And from our location right now at Fire Headquarters, you can go five minutes and be in the middle of downtown, or you can go five minutes and be at Pentacook Lake and think that you were in the, the outer reaches of North Carolina somewhere, 100 miles from any kind of civilization. Okay. That's a remarkable combination. That's what I just love about this city and about New Hampshire. And you're responsible for the fire prevention and related fire issues for all of that. Yes, and part of that is I not only have the ability to appreciate what's out there, but I have some stewardship responsibilities for making sure that we don't damage that lovely environment. Okay. So what is the job of fire chief? And how is it different in Concord uh, than in Salt Lake? Um, Concord is a, a much smaller department. Salt Lake City has 14 stations, about 350 employees. Concord has 101 employees and four stations. So it's about between about a quarter of the size of the department I was used to, with correspondingly smaller staffs. Uh, we had an entire floor of the public safety building when I was there devoted to fire administration and the bureaus of EMS and technology and the other administrative components. And here we all fit into one building. We're just all in an old waterworks building, and it's a smaller staff, which I think gives some incredible advantages to someone coming into this. But the, the scale is very different here. The job is surprisingly just not that much different. Um, okay. There were three of us who left Salt Lake City in 2008-2009, and we're all fire chiefs in different communities, and we stay in touch, and we are amazed by how similar the problems are to what we had in Salt Lake, and how they remain similar to what each other is facing. So even though it's a, the scale is different, the scope is essentially is very similar. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, I had a fire chief who left Salt Lake in 2000, went to Eugene, Oregon, and I called him up after six months and he said, if I closed my eyes, I couldn't tell what department I was in because the same issues, the same challenges keep coming up okay. across the board. So um, we've talked a little bit about your battalions. We've talked a little bit about headquarters. Um, one of the things that you said to me when we had lunch a few weeks ago uh, was that the only requirement to work in headquarters was that an individual had to be smarter than you. In my experience, not every leader feels that way about their subordinates. <laughs> well, um, uh, why we you? Actually, we actually had to raise that bar a little bit. That was too low a bar, so now they have to be twice as smart as me. <laughs> and now I'm thinking that perhaps we need to raise it to multiples of that. Um, this was something that I started talking about in fire prevention where I was the generalist leader, but if you had to work there, you really needed to have uh, mastery of some area of the fire code, and we were specialists. Um, that remains the case. Um, we have hired some extraordinary people in my time here, and if there is a legacy and a pride that I, 
that I would say would be something that would endure beyond my leaving the job, it would be the people who have come here during my tenure. And I mentioned the deputy chief, who is uh, both very young, very, very well educated, and a very productive, phenomenally productive member of the city management team as well as the department management team. Okay. So, yeah, we have, we've hired some incredibly smart people. Four years ago, we hired an administrative specialist, and in her slightly less than four-year tenure with us, um, she had a master's degree in business administration with an emphasis in marketing, and she had undergraduate work in history, which um, really was very um, exciting that she would have that interest as well, but she brought in um, about $700,000 in grant money to us. Okay. And her legacy continues. Thanks to her, we have all new breathing equipment, and we will shortly have every fire station in the city sprinklered. We also have very up-to-date water rescue equipment, and she was great at that. She was great at managing social media. She was great at so many different things, which, frankly, I would be not at all competent in. And I'm not sure other members of the staff would, would even come close to what she brought to us. But we've hired some good people, and the person who replaced her has a different but equally robust set of skills. Neat. You started to mention your deputy chief works with some of the other parts of government. Yes. I wanted to ask you about which departments in the city government do you spend most of your time coordinating with? We spent a lot of our time this morning, just this morning we spent time with human resources because we have three job selection processes going on for vacancies in our departments. We spend a lot of time with human resources. We spend a lot of time with the um, fleet part of our general services department, which is the traditional public works. They also maintain our fleet. Uh, we spend a lot of time with code enforcement, making sure that we're coordinating our work with theirs so that our customers have a seamless experience, so they're not getting shuffled or taking an undue number of steps between departments to get the services they need to build or invest in this city. We try to make that as customer-friendly as possible. Okay. And we, we all spend a lot of time in City Hall. We just uh, we are a fire department, but we are a department of a municipal corporation called the City of Concord. And okay. our leader is the city manager. Okay. And so is that who you report to? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. What is a city manager and how, uh, how does that position, who, how does that position come about? Uh, Concord has a council manager form of government, so we have an elected council of 15 members, a mayor, four at-large councillors, and 10 ward councillors who oversee the city, who are our governing body. They set policy, they adopt the budget, and they really set the direction for the city. They hire a city manager who is responsible for the day-to-day -day operations of the city and for making sure that the efforts of all the city departments, and there are about 13, are aligned with the vision and direction of the council. Okay. And, and he does a really phenomenal job at that. So is, the, so is this kind of like a CEO board relationship? Exactly. That, was, that okay. is exactly the model. And, okay. and in Concord, it works very, very well. Okay. Is there a role for the state in your job? And do you, do you spend time interacting with the state? Is there a state-level fire marshal? Or yes. is there mm -hmm. policy coming from the state? And how, how often do you interact with the state? Frequently. Uh, we do have a state fire marshal. And um, he and his staff are located in the city of Concord. And uh, we saw his staff on Thursday night. We usually will see him, but he is away on vacation. But we work very closely with the state on fire investigations, on fire inspections. Because we have so much state property in Concord, we are in almost a constant dialogue with them okay. about fire protection issues of state properties. So part of the reason that you interact with the state so much is 
that's they're here. Yes, they are. Yeah, <laughs> but, and they're a big part of here because yeah, of the capital city. Yeah, yeah. But I, I guess I, when I thought of that question, I was thinking in terms of kind of a hierarchy within the state. Is there a do you, do they set policy or anything like that? So if I was in mm -hmm. Manchester, for example, where there aren't as many state agencies, would I would I also if you were the fire chief for Manchester, uh, would you also have that kind of interaction with the state? We don't so much report to them, but there are duties delegated to cities, and okay. we find not so much um, a hierarchical role, but a collaborative role with the state. Um, we also work closely with the State Fire Academy, which also conveniently is in Concord, very close to Director Deborah Pendergast and her staff. Uh, one of those um, bureaus within um, the Fire Academy is the Bureau of Emergency Medical Services. Very, very close with them. We spend a lot of time interacting with the State Medical Control Board and being part of the process of protocol and policy development with them. So, you we mentioned the state, but it's not like it's not like they are dictating to us about what should happen. Okay, it's more of a collaborative relationship. Okay, uh, you mentioned the State Fire Academy. Is that where, if if I want to be a firefighter in the state of New Hampshire, do I have to go get my training at the State Fire Academy? You have to go there or someplace equivalent to it that's recognized by them, as okay. equivalent to them to the curriculum they teach. Okay. Is, so. is there more than one in the state of New Hampshire? More than uh, there one op is, option? There is one academy, but they have some satellite sites, and they have recently fulfilled a long-term goal of opening a secondary facility in the North Country, okay. in Bethlehem. So, okay. Because the travel distances are so long for people to get here, yeah. um, it will really be a phenomenal move forward for them to be able to use the North Country facility. But it's actually, but it's actually a satellite. It's, not, it's, it's part of the New Hampshire right. academy. Okay. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. So now in your role as, as the fire chief, how do you interface with the healthcare system? Uh, we are, have a very close relationship with Concord Hospital, which I enjoy a lot. Um, their medical director actually has an office a few feet from where we're sitting right now. Oh. And uh, he's not there very much. He's a, a working emergency department physician. But we wanted to court him office space, and uh, we have certainly provided him with uh, radio and other tools to facilitate his role. So we work closely with Concord Hospital. I'll be up at the hospital tomorrow morning participating in the community needs assessment and we really work hand-in-hand -hand with them on so many initiatives. Virtually we're a part of the healthcare system that delivers patients, the vast majority of patients we see go to them. So okay. we have a very close relationship with um, emergency department staff, provider staff, and, uh, and I think something we'll get into in a few minutes of really expanding the relationship among providers in Concord, which is exciting and challenging for us. Okay. So direct care we talked about. How about public health? Do you have a, do you have a role with public health? Yes. Actually, the other desk that's close to here was for the last five years the, uh, the seat for the Capital Area Public Health Network. Um, they are an, uh, a state agency, they're actually funded by the state through a host agency, and that host agency did not have adequate office space, so the provider or the coordinator for public health was located physically in Concord Fire Department headquarters for about five years. Wow, okay. And the room we're sitting in is their, their emergency operations center for major events that require sheltering and other public health components. But that function was here. I'm, on a, I'm a member of the board of directors of the Capillary Public Health Network. Um, I also serve on the um, Granite United Way Public Health Advisory Council Executive Committee, which is writing the community plan, which dovetails with the state health improvement plan. So 
we're closely allied with public health. It's one of the organizations I belong to, and uh, we have a close relationship um, both for emergency planning, but also for anything that's proactively seeking to um, control or prevent disease, injury, and other health emergencies. Wow. Okay. So that that brings me to a question I wanted to ask you about. One of the things that I noticed uh, in reviewing your CV is um, you're very involved in a lot of community activities. In addition to being the fire chief for Concord, you're very actively involved in a number of agencies such as the New Hampshire Public Health Association, the Northern New England Metropolitan Medical Response Steering Committee, the Concord Coalition to End Homelessness, and the Concord, Concord Rotary Club. And this isn't kind of new for you. You were involved in a lot of community activities back in Salt Lake as well. Why is it important for someone who wants to be a leader in the community to get involved with community service organizations, either directly uh, related to healthcare or not? Any executive in a business, nonprofit, or government has to know their customer. And this is a way for me to know my customers. I serve the city, I am responsible for providing uh, fire protection, emergency medical services, and these give me a way to interact with people from faith communities and the business community. And I'll identify, especially the Rotary Club, um, I have worked side by side with the executive director at the YMCA and the president of the Chamber of Commerce uh, working in the city's, um, I will say soup kitchen, but it's so much more than that, in a feeding mission for the hungry of the city. And we engage in so many community service projects, and it reminds me again and again that my role is service. Okay. It, you know, it's, it's leadership, but it's all about service. It, yeah. Everything is about service. And especially the Rotary Club has given me such a phenomenal opportunity to experience so many different levels of service in all that they do for the city of Concord. And I feel um, it's a little bit of payback for me okay. on a debt. But for all that they do for the city, I think I'm, I'm yeah. glad to take some of my time and invest in the work they're doing. Okay. Has your involvement in community organizations always been supported by the departments that you've worked for? Absolutely. Um, the city manager articulates um, to all of us that our jobs go beyond the eight to five range, that we are not simply here as functionaries in, in offices, that we engage the community and we engage its activities, its people, its problems, and its solutions, which is why my work on the Homeless Coalition is something that he's been an ardent supporter of. That he's, it's, it's a city initiative, but it's also something that um, gets some city resource as well. And it's pretty clear from him that the community is very, very big for him. Okay. And he wants us out there. Part of that is it gives him more reach and more understanding because he can't possibly be everywhere. And having a department heads who are engaged, like uh, one of my colleagues is one of the shelter managers, the, the homeless shelter, and uh, one of our department heads. And we each have different things that we're involved in. And um, between all of it, it comes off as a, a pretty cool place to work because we are engaged with the community. These are more than jobs for all of us. That's, I imagine your interactions with these other organizations must give you some insights as well into kind of leadership, operations, other opportunities to learn. Absolutely. Uh, one of the, of the most um, prevalent was my work with the Concord Coalition on Homelessness, which last year hired a new executive director, a woman who comes to us with a law degree and a public health degree and a background in housing. And her work at coordination and moving things forward has been nothing short of phenomenal. And we, she is moving rapidly to rehouse people in the city who are homeless and 
we are light years ahead of where we would have been without her. So it's a great opportunity to see other leaders in action and as a board member, not to sit back, but to appreciate how much work is happening in the city, um, outside the, the role of city government to make this a better place. And does this help you, I mean, obviously you're, you're meeting a lot of folks, you're, you're, you're extending your network. Mm -hmm. That must be helpful to you as a leader, uh, as someone who has, who has to be able to interact with. Yes, earlier uh, you posed the, uh, the very relevant and timely question about uh, leaving Salt Lake City, where I had worked uh, professionally for 29 years, where I had grown up, and where I knew everybody. That's, that's some hyperbole, but you really get to know sure. the players. And I came here where I didn't have a lot of connection. And through this community work, and it's taken some years, it's built both recognition and relationships among a lot of people in Concord. And that for me is an enduring piece of why I love this work so much, that not only the relationships with our employees who are very committed to this place, but with people outside the organization and outside the city who are outside of city government who are doing so much to make this a better place to live. So you're talking about homelessness and the issues around, um, around that and, and using resources, perhaps not in as, as efficient a way as possible, I think brings us to this, this issue that actually uh, Steve Norton, who was a mm -hmm. uh, guest on the show a few months ago, had recommended I speak to you about uh, because you're trying to do some innovative healthcare delivery here in Concord uh, and working uh, with other activities in the city. Can you talk a bit about uh, what you are working on uh, within the city as far as leveraging your EMS assets in the community? Sure. Uh, the initiative goes by the name of Mobile Integrated Healthcare, and it was formerly known as Community Paramedicine. It's the recognition that our department has a couple dozen um, providers at the paramedic level, and everyone who works um, in the uniform capacity on the street is some kind of medical provider and finding a way to use those resources to address um, pressing medical care needs in our community. And the particular form this is taking in Concord is that we are working closely with other service providers, including Concord Hospital, which has a new CEO, who is very, very committed to a primary care model, and working with the Concord Regional Visiting Nurses Association, who provide care to so many members of our community with um, some difficulties relating to aging or disability or some other issue that causes them to need nursing services. And with Riverbend Community Mental Health, which is dealing with people who, um, with permissions ranging to substance use, to behavioral problems, to all the range of mental illnesses. And all of us are sitting at a table going, how do we make this work best? We have, we all have providers. And in a large degree, it's the same patient population. And how do we work best to make sure that our patients are receiving the most effective care. It's driven a lot by accountable care because now hospitals will not only not be rewarded, will be penalized for early readmission and for bad outcomes. And is there a role for the Concord Fire Department and its medical providers in that kind of system? So we're very early. I wish I had more detail about what it's gonna look like. We okay. don't know yet. Okay. Um, I know how it looks like in other um, cities and towns. And right now it's still taking form here, but we know that it involves issues around mental and behavioral health and also around dealing with chronic conditions. So our job will change. How it will change is still in flux, but it's an exciting and engaging opportunity and we're gonna be doing so much more beyond what the department already does, which is 8,000 calls a year to serve our community. Excellent. 
we've been talking about different organizations. I want to talk for a minute about organizational culture, corporate mm -hmm. culture. Mm -hmm. You've had a chance to work in in, in a number of in two in two different fire departments, but you've also moved through many different organizations as a leader. What is good corporate culture or organizational culture? Good corporate culture comes stems from the core values of the organization. Ours include dedication, integrity, compassion, and courage. And when our organizational culture is at its best, it is reflecting those values. Uh, just this morning, I had the chance to stop before I came in to work at headquarters at a fire station that uh, eight days ago on a Sunday went so far above and beyond caring for a patient. It's a new patient. She's an addict. She's very young. She's on the streets, and she called for services three times that Sunday. And one of our lieutenants made an outreach to a local shelter that deals um, that they thought could help her. And interestingly, the paramedic team who had been on her um, also, the ambulance team also, went there and visited saying, what can you do for this person? What can we do for this person? And that reflected so much more than just simply treating the patient and leaving the hospital. This was really people taking the initiative to care for somebody. That's where organizational culture is at its best and those values are taken to um, new levels. And that's when, when our behavior matches our values and our beliefs. That's healthy corporate culture. How do you shape that? How do you encourage it, make it grow in the way that you want to grow rather than in an unhealthy way? Um, you articulate that. You, you take every opportunity. First of all, you articulate it specifically. And before I came here, the leaders of the organization were in a workshop where they developed um, a vision statement, a mission statement, and core values. And we had those printed and posted in every fire station. And you'll notice that when you walk through the door of fire headquarters, that's the first thing you see. You reward that. You, you take those behaviors. And you talk about it. We talk about it in staff meetings. We've had officer meetings we talked about, you know, how are we doing with the core values? And how is leadership modeling those? How do we reflect those? And then just, just rewarding behaviors like that and getting people to think in terms of those four values, which are fewer than most organizations have but they are remarkably comprehensive in touching the major areas of our work. I want to ask about um, the role of women and minorities in yes. firefighting. Mm -hmm. uh, you've been in, in, fire, in, in the fire service for uh, over 30 years. How has the role of women and minorities changed in firefighting over your tenure? And specifically, how many women firefighters does the Concord Fire Department actually employ right now? Sure, uh, things have changed a lot. When I tested, there was a woman um, who tested with us who was not hired, we thought it novel in 1978 at the time that a woman would aspire to this position. Um, seven years later, the department hired its first female firefighters and my experience with women in the fire service has been nothing less than tremendously positive. Uh, I was scanning with an app last night, uh, Salt Lake City, and listening to one of my favorite captains, uh, Ginger Bearclaw, who is uh, just on the radio, um, just radiates energy and passion for her job. And I, called her up and said, what a pleasure it is to, through technology, to continue to listen to you. Um, you mentioned Concord. There were two women firefighters when I came. Concord's had a good history. Uh, a deputy chief retired in 2004 was a woman, Sandra Hillsgrove. And the two women who were here have since uh, retired from the department and moved on. And currently we don't have any females on the line, which um, is something we hope to correct. We hope that 
And part of that is working with people, and we established an Explorer post in 2010 and a high school program in 2014. We have nine graduates from our Explorer post who are women, and we have had, I think, a total of six or seven women in the high school program. But we want to start young. We want to reach back into high school and have women be um, excited and motivated by the challenge of working in this profession. And the director of the State Fire Academy is a woman who was formerly deputy fire chief of Laconia, and before that was in the dairy fire department. And there are a number of great success stories out there. Uh, Lieutenant Jess Wyman in Nashua and Lisa, Lisa Baldini in Laconia. And uh, there's so many women who have reached officer and chief officer roles and who serve as firefighters in the community, just around the, the communities around here. That's something, that's a value we promote and value. And I hope that the coming years see an influx of women back into Concord Fire, that we're successful in, in taking those people who've shown an interest and bring them through explorer posts and through high school programs and giving them the tools and more importantly the motivation to jump into this career with both feet. So talking about this career, what, what draws people in to be a firefighter in your experience? And, um, and, and then why do people stay? My experience in the military was people join for one reason and they often stay for yes. a different reason. Is that true here? People join because they think this is going to be such a tremendously exciting career. And probably for the first few months or years it is. And then it becomes like any other job. And it becomes somewhat routine. But what you find at some point, and for me this is like a mid-career discovery, the satisfaction of serving a community brings so much to you in psychological income. Um, beyond, beyond the actual dollar income, the fact that you're serving in this role is so very important that a lot of us have problems transitioning out and taking off the uniform and hanging it up. For many of us, this becomes so much part of our identity and we are recognized as people in the community who are there in the stations ready to serve night and day, 24 hours a day. And that's what really brings the, that's the secret of this job. Yeah. Is that why people stay, you think? Yes. Meaning. It's yes. our... Uh, meaning our continual search as human beings for, for finding meaning in this universe. And if you are engaged in a profession that is constantly helping other people at a number of levels, you'll find it. You've now had about seven years to grow uh, into this position as chief. It's the top job in the department. Uh, what surprised you about becoming the chief? How is, that, how is it different than what you might have expected? I really expected that um, my energy level would draw down over the years. I find myself more fired up and engaged okay. in my 37th year yeah. than ever before. To get up in the morning to come to work, last night it was exciting to think about what's lying ahead this week. Some of the, the meetings and the challenges and even in my role, which is less actively engaged in the emergency work of the department, but still there's so much good stuff going on. And each week brings us inches closer to the road we have to travel to become the agency that we want to be. But it's still exciting, and I'm surprised that even, even this far into it, the passion's still there, and the joy's still there. That's great. Let me ask you very, well, let's close on talking about leadership just a little bit, specifically. You've talked about it some already, of course. Could you summarize your leadership philosophy? Let people grow into the people that they are. Okay. And that'll vary from person to person. It's very individual. Give people the feedback and the tools. And uh, we've had the opportunity in this department to 
do some test projects and have people do different profiles of both their management, leadership, and communication style and their emotional intelligence to understand themselves better and to best exploit their strengths, develop their weaknesses, and become more effective. And we're not anywhere near where we need to be in institutionalizing that. And that'll be some of my work over the next few months is to find a leader in this department. I found that leader who's going to lead that effort. But give people responsibility. Let them grow. Um, I mentioned to you that about the battalion chief. He was actually, he and I, he was a paramedic on my crew um, 27 years ago. Um, he had more energy than any other five human beings I knew. And today he's the fire chief of Salt Lake City. And I let him drive for the first time. And uh, at, at a certain point, I was convinced that was going to be the, the close of both of our careers. <laughs> but uh, he did well. We trusted and, him. Uh, and now he's got the top job. And everything he was, that I gave him to do as a young firefighter, he did. And he got all the way to the top. So develop people. Invest yourself in developing people. What makes a good leader? What are the characteristics and behaviors of a good leader? Trust, first of all. Um, and the adage that I use is that... Um, People don't really care what you know, but they want to know that you care. You, they really care about them. And part of our fire service ethos is that we're a family. We live together for 24 hours at a time. We eat together. We, we live a normal life together as a community of, uh, of people who are dedicated to serving for 24 hours at a time, and sometimes more. And um, that's the ethos that we try to really carry on. Is, is that sort of caring for each other and taking care and watching out for each other. As the department chief, you're a leader of leaders. Mm -hmm. What do you look for when you're hiring a leader, a subordinate leader? I, I was actually sharing with the union president, who is a great leader, um, on Friday. I said, you know, half of our job is firing people up and getting them passionate about it, and half of it's calming them down. Because I, I look for people who can do that. I look for people with the emotional intelligence skills to both engage people um, proactively in the work of the organization and for the ability to stop negative talk, negative emotion from overwhelming people. So those are, those are the two things I'm looking for. And I'm looking for people to develop other people. Okay. Um, you mentioned a few times mentors. You mm -hmm. talked about them as uh, professors were mentors, some other, some other leaders were mentors. What does a good mentor do? A good mentor maintains a light touch with the, with the person who is being mentored. They are, they are there as a resource. Their involvement is intentional but occasional. Uh, they don't try and micromanage the person. And they allow the person to grow and sometimes to stumble. And, uh, and most of my good mentors uh, spend some time allowing me to make mistakes that were learning activities for me. I learned a lot from mistakes. I've made a lot of mistakes. And, uh, and part of that is allowing people to grow through that, to see what doesn't work. Yeah. I think it was Edison who, people said, were you discouraged by the fact that you took so long to invent the light bulb? He said, no, not at all. I was constantly finding ways that didn't work, but I could cross them out. And <laughs> right. I think that's the way of looking at it. So speaking of mistakes and, and, and learning from mistakes, can you give an example of a difficult leadership lesson that you had to learn perhaps the hard way? This was actually a question that was posed to me in my captain's exam, and it was followed by a very, very long pause, and I was asked, um, are you trying to think of one? And I said, no, I'm trying to pick one from the many. <laughs> um, part of it is being conscious and aware 
of working with people in interpersonal relationships. And sometimes we fall down, sometimes we become so self-centered, we stop listening. And like most of us, we, we stop listening. We're not so much listening as waiting for the next thing that we're going to say. We're kind of formulating that next piece. Feeling to listen to people has been uh, one of my mistakes, one of my learnings in trying to be more present and open and hearing what people have to say. I think if you master that, you'll be a great leader. Okay. I think that person will, will be a great leader. Does the department here have a formal mentoring program, something outside of a supervisory relationship? We have a very strong informal program and a formal program to the extent that as people are placed on promotional lists, we have a mentoring program where they're assigned to a senior officer to do that. It could uh, benefit from more. It could really, it could be grown profitably, but we do have a, a program at least as good as most places have, mm -hmm. but there's potential for more growth there. Okay. But we do... So, so someone is, is, is assigned a, a senior officer who's not necessarily their, their supervisor, or are they their supervisor? Uh, typically they are their supervisor. Okay. We try and align people, and we try and make very intentional, because we do promotion from lists, we do testing, and then we establish promotional lists, okay. and people on lists are, um, we are very intentional about developing them. But as with most things, it can be improved. Sure, sure. So, closing question. What advice do you have for someone who might be thinking, after they listen to your, to your career story, about trying to follow your footsteps and go into firefighting and emergency medical services? Um, I hope the takeaway here is, boy, that guy is passionate about what he does. Um, I invite people to consider this career. And I invite people who um, maybe didn't consider this before to look at it and say, you know, this could be a way that I could, I could give back. And in giving back, you'll get so much more back. But I would encourage people to take a look at it. We have people from all walks of life, from so many academic disciplines. And interestingly, one phenomenon we've had is a number of people who are mid-career who are coming to work for us. Uh, we have people who are experts in, say, the computer industry. But, and even though they found technical expertise, income, and sometimes very good income, there was still something missing. And in coming here, they found what was missing, which was that sense of meaning and purpose and really that deep satisfaction from serving others. So consider it. Thank you so much for taking your time today. I think, I can't imagine anyone would come away from this podcast not uh, appreciating the passion that you bring to your work. The passion is fueled by the phenomenal people that I work with here. Uh, both within Concord Fire and within city government and larger fire service, and it remains a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.